I do think that there is very direct correlation uh, between uh, political purposes and the restriction of language and power on the one hand and imagination on the other. Maybe this was my vote for imagination and for art because look where the adults in the room have gotten us. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you all for being here. My name is David Eulen, and I am this evening's interlocutor. It's a word I love. I've been asked to introduce myself and Deborah Eisenberg, with whom I am delighted and honored to be in conversation tonight. In a few minutes, Deborah will give a reading. After that, she and I will talk about her work. I can't say which I'm most excited about. To hear a Deborah Eisenberg story is a rare and wonderful event in the universe, um, as is the opportunity of speaking with the author herself. Uh, I've been asked to introduce myself a little bit, which I'll do quite briefly, and then I'll talk a bit about um, Deborah and her work. I flew in yesterday from Los Angeles, where I've lived for more than 30 years. In that time, I've written books and I've reviewed them. I was the book editor and book critic at the Los Angeles Times for, from 2005 to 2015, and I'm now a professor of English at the University of Southern California, where I edit the journal Airlight. Before I go any further, I'd like to thank the Lannan Foundation. Uh, and Martha and, <clears throat> and Jordan particularly for their hospitality this evening and for their perseverance in, uh, in scheduling and rescheduling this event and for inviting me to be uh, a part of it. This is, as we just discussed, the Foundation's first live event in more than two years. As it happens, oh, please, yes. <clears throat> As it happens, in 2018, when I was in Marfa on a Lannan residency, I came upon and read a copy of Deborah's play Pastoral in the house where I stayed. In that sense, this is not our first Lannan-sponsored interaction, but this one is less serendipitous and also has been much longer in arriving. Originally, as you may know, we were scheduled to do this talk in April of 2020, but then the world imploded and we were thrust into what I have come to think about as the slow motion apocalypse. Slow motion apocalypse, as it turns out, is a phrase that might apply to many of the characters and situations in Deborah Eisenberg's stories, which are marked by offhand, almost incidental beginnings and spiky images and metaphors. Way back, oh, not all that long ago, actually, just a couple of years, but back before I'd gotten a glimpse of the gears and levers and pulleys that dredged the future up from the Earth's core to its surface, 
I was going to a lot of parties. She opens Your Duck is My Duck, the title story of her most recent collection, and immediately we are drawn in. The key is that voice, at once discursive and piercing, like an acquaintance sidling up to whisper in your ear. The story is actually, that, that the story is actually about a kind of isolation is as it should be, since for Eisenberg, the critic in me requires that I refer to her for the rest of this by her last name, um, that, that this story is actually about a kind of isolation is as it should be, since for Eisenberg, nothing is more alienating often than other human beings. I brought my computer, the narrator, a painter tells us, describing her retreat to the tropical enclave of her rich patrons, but maybe I could actually just not turn it on, and the dreary growth of little obligations that overran my screen would just disappear. This quality of disappearance or distance is one with which we have all grown familiar these last few years. As with so much, however, Eisenberg was a step or two ahead of us. Call it the anxiety of influence or the influence of anxiety, a subtext that has long illuminated her work. From her first book of stories, 1986's Transaction in Far Transactions in a Foreign Currency, through Your Duck is My Duck, published in 2018, her fiction is, if not exactly skittish, then hyper-aware, edgy, not in the hipster sense of the word, but rather in an almost old-world way of being vigilant on edge. First of all, she has said, nothing is conscious in my fiction making. I've never had an idea. I've never had a thought in my life. The paper has the thoughts. What she's describing is process, which in her case is nothing if not consuming. The 33 stories in her five collections have been produced at a rate of around one a year. Still, don't mistake this for uncertainty or inattention. It is rather the expression of an, intention, an attention so heightened that it lets no one and nothing off the hook. Eisenberg is often considered a commentator on modern manners. Many of her stories deal with people at some distance, emotional or otherwise, from friends and families, from their partners, and even from themselves. In some other better auto, a middle-aged attorney dreads Thanksgiving at his sister's where, we, where he will have no choice but to confront the echoes of his former failings and the insufficiency of his love. No wonder, she writes, one tended to feel so fragile. It was infuriating enough just trying to have contact with a few other people, let alone with all of one's selves. The power of such an observation is that every one of us has been there, that being older doesn't matter, that the same doubts and trepidations continue to apply. Equally essential is the inherent lack of sentimentality, Eisenberg's ability to pierce the essence of a situation in a handful of words. Oh God, reflects the narrator of Rafe's coat, looking at the apartment she has recently packed up. How awful that mirrored view of cardboard cartons, the reflection of poor, pure desolation. At least I wasn't looking too awfully terrible myself, I noticed. Not too terrible, considering life and so forth. Somehow, I'd managed to change remarkably little over the years. There's something ironic about the turn here, but also something pitiless in the way it peels back and excavates the secret knowledge that exists, exists beneath the surfaces of a life. And yet, if many Eisenberg characters are displaced or disconnected, know thyself, as Goethe wrote, if I knew myself, I'd run away. <clears throat> such, a such a condition is not only personal, it also grows out of politics, both individual and collective, not least the responsibilities of privilege and the divide between those with power 
and those without. A number of her early stories take place in Latin America, where much of her 2000, while much of her 2006 collection, Twilight of the Superheroes, explores American culture in the aftermath of September 11th. Do you know how I get the news here? A character asks in the shattering title story, from your newspapers, please. From your newspapers, I learn what restaurants have opened. News I learn in taxis from the drivers. And how do they get it? From their friends and relatives back home in Pakistan or, or Uzbekistan or Somalia. The drivers sit around at the airport swapping information and they can tell you anything. But do you ask? Here you're able to speak freely within reason, of course. And isn't it wonderful that you all happen to want to say exactly what they want you to say? Just keep your eyes closed, panic, don't ask any questions, and you can speak freely about whatever you like. We live now, of course, in a different kind of stifled landscape where even science has been politicized. News is propaganda or conspiracy. Information does not illuminate. We no longer speak a common language. We no longer share a vernacular. The reality, however, as Eisenberg reminds us, is that we have been this way all along. Communication is always stunted, and language can be vague and imprecise, if not outright corrupt. Certainly, Eisenberg's characters represent a case in point. All right, declares the narrator of Holy Week, yes, the planet is littered with bodies. No one's going to dispute that, and the bodies are surrounded by clues. But what those clues mean and where they point, well, that's something else altogether, isn't it? What Eisenberg is describing is a loss of faith in narrative. At the same time, she remains aware that narrative or language are the only tools we have. How necessary then, that even as the people in her stories deceive themselves, Eisenberg remains fully attuned to who they are. Uh, Deborah Eisenberg is going to read, for, uh, read a story, and then after that, she and I will be in conversation about her work. So again, I'd like to thank you all so much for your attention and for being here at this, at this first Live Lannan event in two years. And please welcome Deborah Eisenberg. Thank you all so much for being here. And it's just, it, it's astounding, really, after all this time. Uh, I hope I can remember how to behave in public. Um, and I do want to, of course, thank David for a beautiful introduction. And uh, to thank the Lannans who have been unbelievably patient and hardworking and have uh, gone through hoops to get both me and David here. And it's just really, I mean, well, you all know after a couple of years, uh, who would have thought it? Uh, it's great. So. I am, uh, I have to tell you very honestly, it's always very difficult for me to find something appropriate to read or possible to read. Um, because although I write short stories, they're very, very long. And, uh, they're also very woven. So I can't read a whole story, but it's very difficult. Well, except for the one I'm going to read. 
and it's very difficult for me to pull any apart. Therefore, I have settled to read on my most recently written story, which was written quite a long time ago, but it's my most recently finished. And it is a shorter and more linear than my other stories. I'd love to read you something that's characteristic of my writing, but there is nothing that I've ever written that's characteristic of my writing. Uh, so I will read you this story. And um, I want to just tell you a few things about it so that you don't have to stop and think while you're listening. Um, it is about a girl, 17-year-old girl, named Therese. And um, Therese is apparently some, she's some sort of worker. And in her case, it's, you know, so-called unskilled labor. Something, maybe she stocks shelves or puts labels on things, something like that. Um, and she seems to live in some kind of dormitory situation with other girls who do the same sort of thing that she refers to as housing. Um, I think that's all I need to tell you. The story is written in little chapters, tiny micro chapters with titles, and the title of the story is The Third Tower. Therese. Julia found it in a pile of old stuff. She didn't want it, so she said she would give it to Therese. What was she supposed to do with that, Therese said. A beaten up old book with nothing in it but blank paper. Well, you like to do handwriting. Julia said. Therese looked at the thing her friend was holding. Then she reached for it. Julia laughed, and her black curls bounced. That night, Therese puts it away under her socks, her dear, neatly folded socks. And the next night, when she remembers and takes it out, it seems she has come to love it in her sleep and through the long day of work. Maybe she'll even take it with her, with her on her trip. It looks like an ancient thing with its soft red cover. It looks like it has some tales to tell hidden in those blank pages. She runs her fingers over the thick, rough paper as if to awaken it. Train. Back in the day, railroad tracks crisscrossed the entire country, and trains sped morning and night to every corner of the great expanse. That's what Therese has heard. She thinks she's heard that. Or maybe it's a scrap from a dream. Or maybe it's just an error of her brain. Maybe there were no trains at all. Who knows? But... What's sure is there's one train now, and it goes through the town where she lives all the way to the city, where the hospital complex is. 
Felix has hired a temp to cover for her. He's promised to keep her on when she gets back, one way or another. She's a good little worker, he says. But for now, the spells have gotten so bad they're slowing her down. When he arranged for her to go for the cure, he looked sad, she told Julia. Hmm, Julia had said noncommittally. And it's true that Felix always has the same expression. Pretty much all the old people do, of vague helplessness, as though they've just entered a day full of the troubles they've spent the night dreaming about. But in any case, Therese is going to the city. Of course, they've all seen it a million times in movies and magazines. The brilliant air, the glistening towers and monuments, sailboats gliding from the serene harbor out toward the endless horizon, the gorgeous, gorgeously dressed men and women, the broad white boulevards, banks of flowers, grand restaurants, magnificent shop windows, great heavy strands of gems twinkling away on velvet. None of the girls from housing has ever gotten to go there until now, and the others are all jealous. Really, Therese says, do you want to go pitching over at random moments like she does? She'd trade any day, though maybe she wouldn't, actually. But she'll be their eyes and ears, she promises. The seats are so comfortable, even here in community class. There's a slight thrilling jolt, and her heart lifts as the wheels begin to purr against the tracks. This morning, Julia knocked on the door of her room and gave her a cardboard box containing a sandwich and an apple so she won't go hungry on the trip. Actually, she's already hungry, even though she's just settled onto the train, but she won't open the box yet. Box. The word is shimmering and starting to glow. Therese reaches into her satchel for her book and the pen she stole from laundry when Kira wasn't looking. But she's too late to do whatever it was she meant to. The word has already exploded, and now what's left of it is just a hard, dry little wad. Box. She's sort of exhausted, as if she's awakened too abruptly from a profound sleep. And then there's just darkness. A tunnel, it must be. Now it's bright, and her town is gone. The rays of the sun slant at the sooty windows, moving this way and that, as the train crosses over a shining river of thick, rainbow-colored mud. But where on earth are they? Therese has never seen places like this in movies or magazine pictures. These towns where no person is to be seen, where the windows are broken or covered over with boards and plastic, everywhere heaps of rusted, rotted trash, and here and there a chair leg or part of an antiquated vehicle or torn, filthy dolls sticking up from it. The desolation spreads out and out as if someone had tipped over a colossal container of wreckage. A tiny train moves through it, 
carrying a minuscule speck called Therese. It's cold, Therese realizes, and her speck self is speeding farther and farther from her friends. She holds the box Julia gave her tightly. Now there are woods and raked over fires, it looks like. More trash, an old boot, a ragged shirt. A few weeks ago at supper, one of the girls said she'd heard that a bunch of criminals had escaped from the prison complex. Could Therese be traveling through that part of the country? Fugitives. The word erupts from its casing, flaring up like a rocket, fanning out, fracturing the air into prisms and splintered mirror. Therese snatches up her book and pen and rapidly writes something down. She's sweating. She closes her eyes and takes a few deep breaths before she looks at what the book says. Uniforms, teams, prisoners and guards, shouting, clanging, blood and weapons. Two civil guards stumbling through trees. They trip on twisted roots. They carry a heavy pole. One of the guards at each end, a man hangs from it, roped to it by bleeding wrists and ankles. She stares at the words. Horrible. Good thing she's headed toward the hospital. Maybe the excitement of travel is bad for her. But anyhow, her town is normal, a normal, busy town. The malls are filled with people shopping. Besides, those men in the woods, that was just a picture. The sandwich and the apple are eaten, and they have arrived. Therese brushes some crumbs off the empty box, folds it flat, and tucks it into her satchel, along with her good dress. She's brought her good dress and her book, of course. Doctor. Patient T17-05, female, 17 years, 8 months. Worker, intelligence average, height, weight, appearance, ditto. Word stabilization reflex far below average. Mental crowding or smearing. Excess liquidity of the intellection. Faint and occasional, but rare. Complaint suggests aberrant cortical activity. Diagnosis as yet uncertain. It is to be hoped that a course of repetition modification in conjunction with indicated elaboration suppressants, fuzz-offs the kids call them, can be devised to alleviate symptoms. Assessment. Tree, the doctor says. Therese looks at him, but he's studying the ridiculous-looking contraption she's hooked up to. Tree, please, he says. She thinks for a moment. Leaf, she says. The doctor, watching some dials, frowns. Apparently, the dials have registered some questionable quality in her answer. She tries again. Shade. Just whatever comes to mind, the doctor says. Trunk, Therese says. Trunk, the doctor says. He sighs and takes off his goggles. 
It's important for you to say exactly what's in your mind, Therese, not what you think I want you to say. If I could wave a magic wand and make your symptoms disappear, I would not hesitate. Unfortunately, the process is more complicated than that, and we need your full commitment. There is no right answer. What I want to hear is your spontaneous response, the one that comes immediately to mind when I say the Q word. Any truthful response whatsoever is correct. All right, then, he resumes, tree. Any truthful response whatsoever. She's pretty dizzy, actually, and now the word is really taking over glowing and shimmering wildly as the air breaks up, and a breeze sends light and shadows tumbling through the garden. Inside the old-fashioned house there, a child deliberates over the instrument's keys. Released by the child's touch, the notes detach, wavering out the open French doors, one or two or three at a time, landing awkwardly on the leaves of the magnificent tree, where they teeter for a moment before evaporating into the diaphanous air. A delicate strain of music floats in their wake, like a fragrance. Piano, Therese says loudly. Excuse me, the doctor says. He peers at the dials, then thumps the machine and frowns at the dials again. Excuse me, he turns to her. You said the music is evaporating now, too, leaving only a phantom imprint on her senses, like the warm imprint left on a sheet by a sleeper recently arisen. Piano, was that your response, Therese? The doctor's voice paints rough black streaks over what's left of the melody. Do you play the piano, Therese? Does she play the piano, huh? How could she play the piano? She's never even seen a piano, not a real one, anyhow. Oh, goodbye, garden. Goodbye, marvelous tree. Goodbye, child, whoever you are. Up the sleeper goes, rising into the day this particular day, which assembles around Therese into the gray, somewhat dingy consulting room where the doctor, sitting across from her, waits for an answer. Room. She has been assigned a room, 614. It has a window and a cot made up with sheets and a blanket and a little table with a drawer in it where she puts her things. Nothing extra. They explain it's important for her to have as little sensory stimulation as possible. Nothing to set her off. There's no mirror. There are no curtains on the window, just metal shutters that are kept closed to shield her from the glittering sound of the city, from the sunlight, from the mysterious moon. Her teachers said she'd grow out of it, but it's only gotten worse since school. Words heating up, expanding, exploding into pictures of things, shooting off into all directions, then flaming out, leaving behind cinders and husks, 
a, a litter of tiny, empty, winged corpses, like scorched gnats or angels. It's too bad about the shutters, though, especially because the train arrived here through a tunnel, just the way it had departed from her town. And then, in the station, she'd stood on a moving strip of something or other that took her straight into the walled hospital complex. So she still hasn't had a look at the city. For that matter, since the train arrived, she's hardly seen the sky. Forms. They sit her at a screen, and she fills out scrolls and scrolls of forms, hundreds of questions. Her eyes and ears work fine. She's never broken a bone. Once at an Independence Day party in a housing, there were some strawberries, and a few of the girls, including her, broke out in a bleeding rash. But strawberries are her only allergy, as far as she knows. She doesn't take any medications, no alcohol, no tobacco, no recreational drugs. Yes, she gets her periods. They're normal, she supposes. They started about four years ago. No, she's never had a child. Obviously, in housing. What are they kidding, these people here? How do they think that sort of thing happens? Any family history of Heart problems, as far as she knows, cancer, diabetes, Crohn's disease, Bright's disease, Kefauver's disease, degenerate diseases of the spine and the nervous systems, disorders of the lungs, liver, gallbladder. On a scale of 1 to 100, how well does she cope with stress? On a scale of 1 to 100, how anxious does she feel? Is she willing to let the clinic divulge information about her to the registry? Treatment is contingent on acceptance, who should they call in case of emergency? Yes, who? Felix? Julia? Hausen? Does she give the clinic permission to perform X sort of test, Y sort of test, Z sort of test? Then initial here, please, initial here, initial here. The doctor sits at his large desk and calls up on his screen the questionnaire she spent the morning filling out. Ah, yes, he says. What, what does she mean precisely by this sensation of confusion she refers to? Would she please describe it as exactly as she can? You see pictures, I believe, the doctor prompts. I believe you noted that on the forms? Sort of see, actually. What are these pictures of? Just normal things, she says. But then, for an instant, she sees the two sweating, stumbling guards and the man swinging from the pole between them, bleeding. Or of things that could be, she clarifies. Things that could be happening or that could happen sometime. Did happen, maybe, or maybe not. Something in the woods or a garden. Just anything, anywhere. The doctor waits, but that's the best she can do. And words sometimes seem, he reads from the form, sometimes seem like, what does it say here? Twins? He looks at her, eyebrows raised. 
she feels herself blushing. Maybe not twins exactly, she says. It's like a word has the same word inside it, but the one inside's a lot bigger and with better colors and more parts. And the inside word is sort of vibrating, jostling around, trying, trying to get out of its wrapper. So there's sort of a halo or a floppy margin. The doctor looks down at his folded hands, waiting. Tests. The hours at the clinic pass slowly. They do. The smells of antiseptics and filth. They have Therese ingest a dye so they can observe its root as it slithers through the nooks and crannies of her brain. Needles draw fluids from her into tubes. Nurses seal the tubes and put the sealed tubes into a special cupboard with flashing red lights. They roll her into a metal cylinder that explores things beneath her skin. In other rooms, technicians monitor screens. A message is transmitted to her every five minutes. You are doing fine, the electronic voice says. <clears throat> the doctor paces, oh, consultation. The doctor paces as he explains. We have not yet fully ascertained the etiology of your affliction, nor have we been entirely successful thus, thus far in isolating the full play of its tendencies. The likelihood of a culpable pathogen has almost certainly been eliminated. There is, however, a consistent constellation of characteristics, a profile, if you will, <clears throat> to which the manifestations of this hyper-associative state can be said to conform, though I'm happy to say that our readings indicate a low correlation with the worrisome malfeasance index that is frequently one of its most striking features. Naturally, the overwhelming bulk of the literature on the subject treats the syndrome, <clears throat> this susceptibility, excuse me, this susceptibility to excess or <clears throat> excess or ambiguous substance as an imbalance of sort, a deficiency. It has been thought variously to be hormonal in origin, to disclose a congenital flaw in circuitry, to reflect a failure of character, to suggest a protopsychotic vulnerability, to indicate a degradation of autoimmune system defenses, <clears throat> to express the curse of Satan, or, <laughs> or conversely, to express the gift of holiness, uh, to result from a regional, <clears throat> a regional diet stripped of certain nutrients or from any of a number of viruses contracted in childhood. We at the clinic regard it strictly as a physiological phenomenon, a sort of synaptic leakage, so to speak, and thus pristine, full of the moral stigma it otherwise often carries. Our primary objective here, 
in addition to research, of course, is to help relieve the patient. This entails, as you and I have discussed, a strong motivation on the patient's part to pursue the goal of restored health. The doctor returns to his desk as he talks and shuffles through some papers. How long do you think I'll need to stay? She asks. He looks up, apparently surprised that she's sitting there. Well, as I say, young lady, that depends largely on you. Rest. It's a bit chilly, and the blanket isn't really warm enough. She wraps herself up in it. She's tired from her day of tests, and they've told her to sleep because there will be more tomorrow, bright and early. But instead, she takes her book from the drawer where it's been sitting next to the box that once held the sandwich and the apple under her soft folded satchel and her good dress. She probably isn't supposed to have it, but they haven't said that exactly. There's no rule, and she didn't ask. Though they did say that for her own sake, she should try to refrain from brooding on things. Not only is it tiring, it could adversely skew the test results as well. She opens the book just to admire again the lovely, thick, rough-edged paper. But then the air starts to shimmer. It splinters, splashing words and pictures everywhere, all whirling and glittering. She grabs up her pen. Wooden table, dim, cozy place, funny song about mouse, hands clapping in time, leaves dripping fresh, horse and buggy, buggy, blossoms, hooves, Glass mountain, meadow mountain, tiny white flowers, tiny yellow star flowers, tiny pearl moon, sailing moon, sorcerer moon, watchman moon. People long white robes, little outdoor tables, little glass cups, stars, moon. The pictures flow by, sparkling, dissolving, blending in their disorder, fading finally. She blinks and looks around at the stillness of the room. The mute shudders. She closes the book firmly and puts it back in the drawer. Maybe these pictures are memories that somehow became detached from other people and stray through the universe, slipping through rips in the fabric and clinging to whatever living be beings they can faulty beings like her. She draws the blanket more tightly around herself and snuggles into the thin pillow. Noisy outside, though, tonight. All that loud banging. Clinic life. They fit a metal helmet onto her and the procedure room darkens for a moment. Or that's what Therese thinks when she wakes up, with a dull ache in her head. In fact, they tell her, it's hours later. Treatment. The drugs have started. She's doing better on the tests. Tree, the doctor says. 
She shuts her eyes and breathes deeply. Take your time, the doctor says soothingly. Tree. She gathers all her powers of concentration. Tree, she says hesitantly. Good, the doctor says, looking up from the dial. Excellent, he pats her shoulder. Tired? You've been working hard. His approval emboldens Therese to speak. She has been working hard, she concedes. But all that loud banging at night keeps her up sometimes. Fireworks, the doctor says, national holiday season. The doctor reflects. A taxing week, but one with its rewards. Patient T716-05 is showing great improvement. She's a touching little thing, limited comprehension, but eager to cooperate. It's gratifying to think of the stride she's made with the help of treatment. He's looking forward to writing this up. It was only a month ago, after all, that her responses in the verbal identification tests indicated apparently almost hopeless ideation capacity. <laughs> Piano for tree. Any answer is valid, of course. In fact, there's a certain proportion of the population with very slight surplus associative disorders who will respond quite spontaneously to tree with leaf or branch, even bark, even trunk. Yes, even trunk. But such responses are considered to be within the periphery. Such individuals are generally classified as normal. Piano, however, clearly extrapolated from wood, itself an outer sphere coordinate, tree, wood, piano, is far beyond the scope of what can be regarded as healthy. Failure to recognize the confines of words, words, the building blocks of achievement, to quote from his recent article on the subject in Neural Function Today, indicates an underlying degradation in the development and functioning of those node clusters that enable the brain to comprehend the world in which its proprietor organism finds itself and puts that organism at risk of potentially dangerous misinterpretation of data. What if, for example, an organism were to identify a large obstacle in front of it as, for example, the foot of an immense tree, rather than correctly, as the foot of a giant prehistoric animal. Consider the possible consequences. There is, however, a strain of current thinking in the field that categorizes those rare individuals subject to pronounced hyperassociative disorders as in some way viable. Visionaries of the banal, as one pretentious colleague's paper on the subject styled it, 
the fellow won some sort of prize for that bit of foolishness, the doctor recalls. In any event, it has been demonstrated that productive work can often be found for such individuals. For example, in the field of branding. The doctor, alone in his office, chuckles, somewhat self-consciously, at the thought of a former patient whose bizarre, though fortunately curable, conviction that thousands of people, <clears throat> thousands of people were being shot as they returned to their homes at night and stood fiddling with their keys at their doors turned out to be linked to his extraordinary and ultimately very well-remunerated ability to think up names for paint colors. <laughs> Sunday. Therese wakes just before dawn, gasping for breath in the gray glass dust mist between sleeping and waking, surrounded by a static of phantoms. Can she capture some of them in her book? She starts to open the drawer where it is, but the whispering and flimmering is already winking out around her. Just as well. She's been making high scores on the tests. She daren't risk a relapse. She closes the drawer firmly and walks back and forth in her room to shake off the phantom remnants. The noise of the night's fireworks is still in her ears. The moon is there or not there behind the metal shutters. They've strongly suggested that she rest today, and that's just what she plans to do. She's calm enough now to fall back asleep, she thinks, and when she wakes up in the true day, She'll be careful to take it easy. She still hasn't seen the city, though. What will she tell her friends at home? Oh, but she knows how it looks out there. They all know how it looks, beyond the hospital complex, out on the broad avenues. The pealing of the bells comes faintly through the metal shutters, and when she closes her eyes, she sees the sun shining, shining, the air all gold, and gold reflecting over the entire glorious city from the tower at its summit. Streams of people, their arms laden with aromatic leaves and sprays of flower, are coming from all the great houses and towers. Processions pour through the boulevards to worship, the women are so beautiful. Their wrists flash with jewels and their legs gleam. Their long, pale hair flows down their backs. At home, her friends bow their heads and kneel. Julia has put a, a pretty Sunday ribbon in her black curls. Therese thinks, we are grateful. Later today, the others will take their weekly salaries to the mall, as they do every Sunday. Earrings, nail polish, maybe a new game, a t-shirt, a treat. What would she get if she could be with them? Tomorrow, a new week will begin with more tests, and 
they say they'll be able to measure exactly how well the drugs are working. Therese opens the drawer in her table and surveys the tidy stack of her possessions. She tucks her book away on the bottom. A little dry crumb clings to the cardboard box. Do her friends at home still remember her? She unfolds her good dress, smoothing the soft fabric and admiring the sweet flowers printed on it. She puts it on and lies down again, falling towards sleep. Yes, she can hear the doctor's voice. Tree, he says. Tree, she says, and a peaceful sensation radiates through her as the word locks down. But then, for a moment, she feels her unruly heart, her skin, her neurons, the secret language of her body, sending evidence of treachery to the sensors and dials. All around her, behind the wall of locked words, hums the vast, intractable, concealed conversation. Coin, the doctor says. She closes her ears and strains to shut out the noise. Coin, she says. Tears of effort cloud her eyes. Good, says the doctor. Mirror. His voice is growing softer and more insistent. Mirror, she says, and her voice too is low and urgent. Tower, the doctor says. She takes a deep breath. Tower. Fireworks, the doctor says. In her sleep, she struggles to scream, but she cannot make a sound. Let's try that one again, please, the doctor says. Fireworks. Fireworks, she says. Moon, the doctor says. Um, I think I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> you know, I want to start by asking you about that story. Um, because Go right ahead. Okay. Um, because one of the things I admire about that story so much is the way that it really is a story about sort of language being corrupted or obfuscated um, or the sort of insertion of external meaning onto someone's internal perception. And so I wonder, um, and I want to talk about that a bit in the conversation. So I wonder if we can start by talking about the kind of the genesis of that story. I've always thought of the third tower, obviously, in relation to the two towers. Exactly. Um, and I thought, I've thought about the language in the story kind of in relation to um, the public language around those kind of events. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about your intentions in that piece. 
Well, my intentions were all retroactive or retrospective, I have to say. I, um, it was, it is more mysterious, I would say, than most of my stories. Um, but the genesis of it, I, I happen to remember uniquely, uh, I was actually having a conversation with my friend Brenda, and I remember saying, to Brenda, this must have been around 2016, you know, somebody should write something called The Third Tower. And uh, Always dangerous for a writer to say that. <laughs> you know, a lot of time went by, and I, of course I don't, I, I never know what's going on, so maybe dozens of people had by then, but I didn't know about it, so I just thought, well, okay, I, I'll do it. But uh, I, I didn't, and from then it goes blank, as you know, I never remember how I wrote anything really. It's very common, I, I understand among fiction writers. Um, but uh, it was in many ways a real struggle for me because uh, it's the most un- naturalistic story that I've ever written. So I was out and I didn't, I had no interest in writing anything that was science fiction or futuristic. So I was out in an area where I had to uh, not invent, but really ascertain the rules. And it took me a long time. Everything takes me a long time. But discarding and, no, this doesn't belong into it. Wait, that thing over there belongs in it. And uh, you're, of course, right about the title that, um, uh, well, I was thinking of the two towers and then, of course, the Trump towers. Um, but a tower is always, I mean, everybody wants to live in a tower, but towers are, you know, they're frightening, inherently frightening. They always imply uh, domination uh, uh, or a protection from danger or boiling oil. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, they are frightening. And, um, and, it's a lot to, and I don't know how it came to be exactly a, a story that so intimately concerns language, but it obviously requires quite a bit from the reader, which is to triangulate or maybe just duangulate or something between the, the title and this strange affliction that the girl has. And of course, the affliction is imagination and being able to use her own mind, <laughs> which is, uh, in this particular context, which to me is not uh, the, a, a future of any sort, but sort of a parallel present. Um, uh, that is... Uh, that's the thing that is not allowed uh, and and is very much discouraged. And 
I do think that uh, there is, you know, a very, uh, a very direct um, correlation. Well, obviously, uh, uh, between uh, political purposes and the restriction of language and power on the one hand and imagination on the other. And I do want to say that uh, maybe, maybe this was my vote for imagination and for art, because look where the adults in the room have gotten us. It's bad, you know. We can't, yeah. I mean, can't catastrophically bad. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because I think it is mysterious, but one of the things I love about this story, and it's true of a lot of your work, but really pronounced here, is that there, are, as you say, there's triangulation or biangulation or however we want to call it. They're clues. And as readers, we have to be paying attention and picking up those clues. The story doesn't announce itself to us. So, for instance, when she's on the train and, you know, there's darkness and then there's that rainbow colored river, we have to be kind of thinking about a world of environmental degradation. Yeah. And when she gets the whole question of fireworks and what's actually happening outside her window, (laughs) all of those things. And, you know, so, but so it's all there. It it reminds me, it's interesting that this story appears in the same book as your story merge, which has one of my favorite um, questions, I suppose that you've ever posed language. What does it clarify? And what does it obscure? Because it seems to me that both of the, I mean, and that story begins with uh, two epigraphs, one by Noam Chomsky and the other by our former prevaricator in chief um, about having the best words. And I think there's something so interesting about the interrogation of language um, as this complex process. Um, have you been thinking, I mean, is that something that has been kind of preoccupying you all along or is that, has that emerged or become more pronounced over the last 20 years or so of our, of our public life? Hmm, I really don't know. Uh, I, I mean, as soon as, I mean, public life has sort of eaten us all up. Uh, it's very, it's kind of edged out our private lives. Uh, <clears throat> and, I mean, to a, a degrading extent. And, and as soon as you're in public life, you're, you're immersed in language problems, uh, just the way language is, uh, is slanted. I mean, everybody's coming from somewhere all the time, but the more political uh, or public, even just public, the purposes are that surround us, the more flattened and pointed language becomes, language use. So I, I, I suppose the answer is, is yes, because uh, uh, certainly in this country, since, uh, uh, well, there was a rapid acceleration of uh, of um, political and public domination of thought and ideas in uh, you know two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, yeah, I mean, and going back in some ways, I think, to the 2000 election or even... Sure. Well, we could go all the way back. Yeah, we can we, go we, we all. Could, the we could way spend back. all night tracing it back. But yes, I, I completely, um, I completely agree. I, I'm, I'm curious about this, and I don't want to harp too much on politics, but I do want to talk yeah. a little bit about politics in the work because you are a writer who engages politics in your work, going all the way back um, to stories. That, you know, in your first collection um, dealing with stories about um, American influence in Latin America, sort of not just there, uh, like cult, not just political imperialism, but also sort of individual imperialism, um, the relationship between the, the, have, the cultures of the haves and the cultures of the have-nots. Um, it's a commonplace that politics doesn't age well in art, but I don't agree with that. And I don't know that you do either. And I'm kind of curious for your general thoughts on sort of art as a political statement, but also art that directly reflects on um, political political realities. How do you, um, how do you imagine it? How do you do it when you're sitting to write a story, let's say, um, about, uh, you know, one of these two stories, for instance, or, or even a story like your, your, your duck is my duck, which is a story that takes place in a, in a country where well-meaning Americans have planted eucalyptus as a as a cash crop and have caused a devastating cycle of, of drought and flooding that has, that has destroyed the landscape that they, um, that they wanted to save. Yeah, I never, I've never thought about writing a political anything. Um, uh, and I don't think I'd be very good at it if I started with an idea. You know, I want to write a, a story that expresses um, X, Y, or Z uh, a belief or idea or, or even situation. I, I'm not interested in it at all. Um, I have been, though, for many years, uh, interested just personally in the strange dilemma of um, being the sort of clueless goofball beneficiary of uh, of systems that I don't approve of, uh, and I, I that does enter my fiction a lot. I think just that tension, the play of on the one hand being oneself, you know, I I'm just a person, and on the other hand, I'm a taxpayer in a disproportionately powerful country uh, with um, that expresses in its actions uh, various well one one ideology and um, so that's when I if I go so far as to look in a mirror, I see me. But if somebody else is looking at me, somebody who's not almost exactly like me, they see my tax dollars. Mm -hmm. And that's always part of me. Yeah. I see that. I mean, it comes out in some, not, in some sort of in domestic situations, too. For instance, in The Burglar, um, 
which is a fascinating story about a party and um, a variety of things that get revealed. One of the most interesting aspects of that story, I think, has to deal with a character named Rue, who has been brought in by this suburban family, essentially as a, an au pair or a nanny, but has essentially taken over both the raising of the children and the running of the house. And it becomes a kind of, um, I mean, I keep, as I was rereading it for the, to prepare for this, I kept thinking of her of, as being kind of a client state on an individual level, you know, that, that, that family is a kind of, and I don't, I know you didn't write it that way, but that family is operating on some level metaphorically or the family's relationship with that character is uh, whatever else is going on is operating as a kind of um, an emblem of, of, of the larger macrocosmic um, situation. Yes, I once opened my mouth in some situation and said kind of grandly, all fiction is about power relations. And <laughs> the person I was talking to said, what, what do you mean? And I had no idea, but I still think it's true. I think it's, I mean, we could talk about that. I totally agree with you. And, and I've also, I think, as a teacher, I've often found myself saying things in class that I have no idea what they mean. And then a student will say, what are you talking about? And I'll say, I don't know. What do you think I'm talking about? <laughs> I'll think about it. <laughs> think about that. I want to ask about some, uh, some stylistic things. I, I've, um, I've been thinking for a while about the relationship of first and third person. And I know, I've noticed again, uh, as I was um, rereading your work, that in the first collection, almost all of the stories are in first person. I I think only one is in third person. I think in that very first collection, transactions in foreign currency, they're all in the first person. And then the first person is very rare throughout the mm -hmm. rest of the body of, of work. And um, was that, uh, and, uh, you know, it, I'm curious about why, about the, the move from first into third person or beginning um, with first person as a, as a writer in those, I'm assuming in that first book, in those early stories. Um, what it offered you and what it didn't offer you and what opened up third person as a, um, as a strategy? Well, I have come to believe in taking the um, road of least resistance uh, as a writer. It works out best. And I, that book, uh, that first book of stories, I was very, very tentative. I mean, I, I couldn't believe I could even hold a pencil. You know, I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. So it was, uh, there I was sort of writing. And I showed, uh, I, at that time, the um, Ruth Chabwala, who I'm sure you <clears throat> the writer Ruth Chavala was a friend of mine, the late, wonderful Ruth Chavala. And she kindly offered to read a few of my stories. And so I gave her my first, like, three stories. Mm -hmm. They were in first person. And she said, oh, you could write a kind of fake autobiography. And I thought, that's right, I could. And uh, I totally misinterpreted her uh, <laughs> to... Uh, for my own purposes, I sort of thought, oh, I guess I can write all the, I, I can write things in the first person, which was easiest for me at that time. And so I just did. And it wasn't what she meant, but no matter. Uh, and then I kind of, I mean, I do whatever seems indicated. Some, and I, while I'm working, I often switch back and forth and back and forth and just find out what works best. Um, but uh, I sort of 
slightly turned against the first person just at that moment when I finished that book because I just felt it's unfair. I'm getting a free ride here. You can um, you can get people to identify with the character, and I don't like that. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm getting something free. It's I'm stealing. I don't want to do it. So I didn't for a while. Well, when you say you don't like that, do you say, you mean you don't like the ease of it? Or do you mean that you don't like having the reader identify with the character? I, I didn't want to just, I didn't want to be ingratiating mm -hmm. as a writer or a character. I just didn't want to do it. Because right. uh, what I love about many of your characters is that they test my um my, my identification <laughs> let's say right um i don't want to say that they're um yeah i don't want to say that they're unsympathetic but they're they're wrestling with let's say their own sympathy to themselves they're trying to figure things out yeah. and that kind of thorniness of their existence i i you know I, I i guess what i'm asking is do you think that that is i don't want to use the word easy but easier to do in a third person account where you're not so closely aligned with a first person narrator uh, probably. Yeah. The other question, too, about that first person um, notion is that you write um, stories that are, I think, um, elaborately cast in a lot. They often um, have vast casts of characters and fairly elaborately staged. And I want to yeah. talk a little bit about that in terms of, of theater. But before we go there, is um, do you think that uh, that it was that feels to me more a function of the third person stories. And I wonder in terms of the first person stories, is it um, more difficult or more, let's say, is the form less amenable to that kind of broad, that broad character range and that kind of, um, that staging? I suppose so. I mean, <coughs> uh, you know, you just, the camera is farther back mm -hmm. with, if it's third person. Right. Um, that, that's all. Do you do you think that the the kind of that sort of you know big cast multi scene story? Do, do you, I want to ask you. You know, you're the, you wrote the play before pub or put the play out before you. Wrote, I read everything. I'm <laughs> I, I, before I left here. I speaking of our our public conversation on social media. I said I'm uh, leaving home for forty eight hours and I'm only bringing eight hundred pages of reading material. <laughs> So, uh, so, but I'm curious, you know, that play was 1982. So that's before the first collection came yeah. out. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your, your history or your um, pro progress as a writer in terms of starting as a playwright or writing that play, that play early and then moving into fiction. I know that you've had a long um, sort of relationship with theater and, and film over the course of your career as well. So what's the relationship between those two? It's just, well, the play was kind of a, a fluke. It was an accident. Um, I had written my first story, which is in that first collection. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine wanted to direct it as a reading uh, at the public theater. She was given... Uh, the opportunity to direct something. So she said she wanted to do that. Uh, I was sort of horrified. And, uh, you know, I said, well, it's a story. It's not, uh, it's not theater. And she said, well, you know, <laughs> I'd like to do it. So uh, 
So she did, and uh, and about six months later, Joe Papp called me, and he was the head of the the New York Shakespeare Festival in New York the Public Theater, and um, he called me and he said, well, you know, I was just going through my drawer and I found your story and I think you should write a play. And I said, oh, Joe, I can't write a play. Uh, how could I write a play? And he said, well, I think you should write a play. And I said, well, I really can't write a play. And he said, well, uh, you know, I'll give you, I'll, I'll put you on salary for a few months to write a play. And I said, Joe, I have a very good waitressing job and I'm not a good waitress and nobody's going to hire me again if I quit. So, you know, let's just, and he said, listen, just drop a couple of nights a week. I'll put you on salary for those nights and you have five months to write a play or something. I said, oh, all right. In that, in that case, great. So, um, I panicked. <laughs> that seems the uh, that seems the reasonable response. Yes. <laughs> and Joe kept saying, um, "Well, why don't you come in and and um, show me what you're working on?" Well, I would never, never show anybody anything that I'm working on. Never. Uh, you know, if, if I'm finished. Then I'll show you. If I'm not finished, I'm not going to show you. So I kept just sort of saying, oh, sure, I'll come in. So finally, I actually sat down and wrote a play. And it was the fastest I've ever written anything before or since. Well, there wasn't much before. Um, and so I brought it into Joe, and he read it, and he said, I hate this play. <laughs> And uh, he said, I, and Joe, I adored. Uh, I really did. And he was one of those people who loves to be generous and loves to be encouraging. And he hates not to be encouraging. He hates to be discouraging. So he was furious at me, of course, because um, he really hated the play. And... Uh, so, I, for some reason, I was very confident about that play. I had tremendous more confidence in it than anything else I've written. And I just, I didn't care. And uh, the play was done. It was done, uh, not by Joe. <laughs> uh, and it was done very well. And it, uh, people liked it. And it was a very good experience. And... I, I don't think I, I'm not a playwright, um, but I just, if it hadn't been for that play, and if it hadn't been for Joe, I never would have kept writing. Interesting. And you had already written the first story beforehand. Only so you were already, you, but, so you were. So what is it? I mean, you're a committed short story writer. You've never written a novel, although as we, we talked about, or as you talked about, and I, I think I also talked about, some of the stories are long and have kind of novelistic qualities. Um, what is it about the short story? Just 
shortness. I mean, <laughs> compression. Compression. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, frankly, David, I start with the novel and I cut. That's, you, 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 know, you cut out all the parts that people don't want to read, right? <laughs> Um, I want to. We want to talk for. I want to talk a bit more. A couple more questions um, in your stories, and I think this comes back to the story you read in in one way, in more of a kind of the state is way. But it, in stories like mermaids, for instance, people are always lying in your stories or kind of you know working things. In mermaids, for instance, a father takes his daughter and her friend, uh, or two daughters and a friend, to New York on a trip because they're doing something special. But in fact, he's disappearing to. Uh, have various assignations. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious too, and I think this comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about language being something that both um, obscures, can illuminate, but also obscures. Your stories are, all, all, are always sort of doing, um, doing both. I'm curious about that as an impetus, even in these kind of personal stories, a story like Mermaids, for, uh, for instance. Um, how did that story develop? And at what point did you know... Um, how it was going to, you know, you say you kind of try things out and you move things around, you discard things that aren't working. At what point did you sort of know what the shape of that story was going to be and that it was going to be about this, this sort of fake generosity on the father's part to, to, to take care of himself? Well, that was actually um, one of the very few stories where I... I mean, usually I don't know what I'm writing until I've finished. I mean, I've finished many, many drafts, mm -hmm. and I think I've finished the last draft. And I don't have a title often, and I think, what is the title of this story? And then I realized that... I, the story isn't finished if I don't, if it isn't clear to me what the title is. Mm -hmm. That story, I didn't have the title, but I did, I gave myself a little assignment. And the assignment was um, uh, a guy, a, a sort of suburban, uh, upper middle class father, uh, very conventional. Uh, uh, is having, li lives not in New York, lives far away, maybe in the West or Midwest, and he's having an affair with a woman in New York. Uh, he's married, he has children, he wants to see the woman. He's going to bring his daughters to New York. Well, the story really is about one of the daughters. Right. And, um, but that much I knew about it to, to start with. And also through the filter, I mean, it's not, it's a third person story, but it's, it's through the point of view of the daughter's friends. So yes. you're getting a, a kind of outsider view of the family rather than the insider view of the family as, as yeah. well. Yeah. And I don't know why. I, I mean, I, all of it is just experimentation until something finally begins to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I want to ask you this, and then I um, and then I want to um, and then I think we um, we can let everybody go. But one of the things I was thinking about this this week too is in Twilight of the Superheroes, which is a story that revolves um, significantly around the collapse of the 
other two, the two towers, the, other, the first two towers, um, and the witnessing of that collapse. There's a moment at the beginning of the story and, um, where you, you write, um, you're writing about Y2K and how there was this expectation that everything was going because of some one tiny mistake that we had made, the entire world was going to end. Um, and you describe that, the outcome, um, as uh, it was a miracle, you write, um, that nothing catastrophic happened at all. And it's a fascinating moment because there's, it's this moment of hope and of, um, and of redemption, but it's the prelude to a worse catastrophe. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in, in that kind of, you know, both the, I don't want to ask you about the genesis of that story in the, exactly, but the balance in that story, that's also a story that telegraphs at a certain point way out into the future and has one of the characters kind of looking back and trying to imagine how he would explain um, all sorts of things to his grandchildren when that world no longer, um, that world no longer exists. Um, I guess the question is, it's a, it feels like a juggling act on the page. There's that moment of, we have that moment of redemption or that moment of, of mir that miracle. And then the miracle is followed by the opposite of a miracle and, and so on. And I think maybe in terms of our current moment, our current crisis, not to, not to bring up, well, we can spend Which, three hours talking about that, but, but I'm curious about your sense of this kind of back and forth, this interplay between, on the one hand, the redemptive or the miraculous, or the thing that allows us to keep going, and on the other hand, this this overwhelming weight of uh, political and historical um, wrongdoing. That story also features a character whose um, whose parents were you know ran were, were hidden children um, during the war in Europe. So it's not that this is all happening for the first time. No, uh, I mean the wonderful feature of history, of course, is its unpredictability. And uh, uh, it, it's really full of surprises. And when you, when people, I, I mean, I've always felt tremendously sorry for people who died in 1944, right, before the end of the Second World War. Uh, and I think of what a moment that must have been, the end of that war. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we're on a very fast track now, but it's, we, we don't, we don't know where it's going. No. And yeah, of course, it's very, uh, of course, I'm interested in that, in that tension and that, in that play. I mean, even, uh, well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm actually not the first person in the world to observe that fortune is a wheel. <laughs> right. We just don't know. No, and of course we think about history <laughs> because we only do look at it retrospectively or yep. retroactively as inevitable in some way. But, you know, we're always, obviously we're always living through history and history is always getting the better of us. It's funny you said that about 2000, about 1944, because I for a period of time was thinking about people who died in 2016 yeah. and almost envying them in a certain sense. Uh, <laughs> well, you'll have your chance. <laughs> that is, um, that is true. Um, all right. I just want to, um, I just want to see if there's anything else I want to ask you. And then, um, I think we have covered, uh, we have, we have, we have covered this. 
Um, I really want to say thank you for, uh, thank, well, thank you for all of the work over all the years, um, which has given me such pleasure. And thank you for, for this reading and this conversation. Oh, thank you, David. Thank you so much. And thank you all again very much for, for coming. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.